Hello, and welcome to Smoke and Shadow. I am your host, Victoria Sadowski, and today we're getting spooky. We're getting fucking spooky, kids, because we're going to talk about a place that I don't think a lot of people associate with the paranormal or weird conspiracies or things like that, but it's got them. And of course, we have a brand to follow. So I sort of wanted to touch on something that was very historical, a little bit political, and a little bit sort of involved in religion, but honestly, we're not. We're just going to kind of glaze over that part. We're definitely going to talk about it, but this comes out in October. We have certain needs that need to be met in October, as you all know. So we're going to focus on the spooky parts a little bit. And by now, you're probably like, where? what are we talking about? We're talking about the Palace of Versailles. But of course, before we dive into Versailles, I do want to remind you guys, if you have any sources you want me to use or have any topics you want me to cover, you can email that stuff to smokeandshadowpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to reach out or see what I'm doing or see any funny little tidbits throughout my research, you can follow me on Instagram. And in the show notes, you can find a link to my Patreon if you choose to donate. Thank you so very much. And most importantly, please share, download, follow, subscribe, any of those things. You don't even need to pay for it. Just do it. It helps so, so, so much. So if you do any of those things, thank you very, very much. So without further ado, let's get into it. So the first mention of the name Versailles was in a deed, God, hopefully I don't butcher this, titled Charter of the Saint-Pierre de Chartres Abbey, which had been signed by a certain Hugo de Versailles, who was the sort of lord of the area at that time. A hunting lodge was built in 1623 or 24 or 29 on the site of the Palace of Versailles by King Louis XIII. And the reason why I couldn't really get the date is because there, everywhere I looked about this particular sort of area of the story... There were a lot of inconsistencies, one being when Louis Thirteenth first visited Versailles, because some people were like, he visited with his father when he was five. And then another source said he his father died by the time he was four. So it, it's hard to pin down, at least for me. Maybe I'm just not looking at the right sources, but it's a little confusing. Also, random little thing, the father of Louis Thirteenth, Henry Fourth of France, he was stabbed to death. Uh, when Louis Thirteenth was very young, and the two of them supposedly very much like bonded over Versailles, but I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not sure how deep that really goes. Also, Versailles is considered a chateau, and at the beginning of the Renaissance period, the term chateau was used to refer to a rural location of a luxurious residence as opposed to an urban palace. Versailles was expanded by Louis Fourteenth in three phases from 1661 to 1715, just as Versailles had been a favorite residence for Louis XIII, it was also the same for Louis XIV. And in 1682, Louis XIV moved the seat of his court and government to Versailles, making the palace the de facto capital of France. However, when Louis XIV died, the court abandoned Versailles and a long period of neglect followed. And a fun little fact, well, not really fun, but... <laughs> The Hall of Mirrors, which is a very famous part of Versailles, has a very dark story to it. And in the 17th century, it was decided that all materials and construction work on the palace should be made in France. But because the art of mirror making was a Venetian one, that was a problem. 
So to get what they wanted, the French court commissioned a few Venetian artisans to create this marvelous mirrored hall. In response, the Venetian government ordered the artisans to be assassinated. <laughs> this was to protect their mirror-making techniques from the French. This is, by the way, a questionable source, but it sounded really valid and very like, this sounds about right, so I included it. But the source uh, wasn't one that I trust, but again, sounds plausible. The state of affairs of Versailles was continued by Louis XV and Louis XVI, who primarily made interior alterations to the palace. And we need to take a second to throw in some important context. So, yes, the name you've all been waiting for. Marie Antoinette was the younger sister of Joseph II of the Holy Roman Empire. And, you know, of course, the Queen of the French. So throughout her time as queen, her brother would put a lot of pressure on her to do things in the interest of the Holy Roman Empire, and since France was a Catholic monarchy, Joseph II saw France and his little sister as tools. Joseph II expected his sister to have great influence over her husband, and was to broach topics like the reopening of the Scheldt River near Antwerp, which the Dutch were expected to resist. And we could go into a whole saga about the Scheldt River, but we're not going to right now. And I also want to touch on the fact that this was not the only issue that he was kind of trying to get her to broach with Louis XVI. However, Marie Antoinette remained content to aid any who petitioned her, as Comte de Lamarck noted as a rare goodness of heart. So there's a little, little things that I've learned about Marie Antoinette from reading about her, being that she was actually someone who wanted to do good in the community, and not just, you know, wealthy people who were like, oh, do this for me. She, you know, took interest in, you know, anything and any people, but due to not only the attitude of the French government and the attitude of the Holy Roman Empire, she was sort of at an impasse where she couldn't do a whole lot. And a lot of historians speculate that due to the frivolousness of the French court that she resided at, a lot of her sort of escapism was by, you know, buying into the distractions that the court was giving her. You know, like fancy new dresses, great new artisanal foods, and all these beautiful things. But there are other historians who are like, nah, she was gung-ho about just being a glutton too. So... It's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say, but there was definitely a lot of pressure on her and not a lot of ways to alleviate that pressure. And the sort of goodness of heart actually ended up getting into trouble with her brother, who considered this behavior to be mere feminine wiles, and he imposed his expectations on her whenever he wrote her. He pretty much was like, seduce anyone from your husband to the ministers because we need to get this done, and resolved to bully and berate her in order to get his way. She would argue him. She wouldn't take it. She would argue him and remind him that her husband and the general French court were taxiturn and did not bring up matters of the state around her despite how many times she brought it up. Also, she noted that when she would cunningly get information from the ministers and then bring it up to her husband, he seemed embarrassed and shy, which was most likely due to his upbringing where he was constantly told to be wary of the Austrian princess that he was engaged to, as well as the empire's power over France. Because the French liked their allies, but they also very much liked their autonomy. And the Holy Roman Empire infringed on that autonomy. So you can sort of see how, despite the fact that she was trying to be, you know, intelligent, involved in political matters, and making the effort, it was 
just she was talking to a brick wall. It wasn't going anywhere. She wasn't involved in political matters. And despite the fact that allegedly her husband did love her and they had a decent relationship, he would just kind of shy away. He wouldn't get mad. He wouldn't get mad at her. He wouldn't, you know, accuse her of trying to be a spy. He'd just be like, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you about this. And that's like, I mean, it's not the worst way to be turned down, especially when you consider around this time there's the Duchess of Devonshire who has a horrible time dealing with her husband. But again, she didn't get beheaded. So this is a bit of a pickle for Marie Antoinette and one that she would go out of her way to try to help her brother when he would ask. And in the end, he didn't really help her out with anything. And in 1789, the royal family, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, returned to Paris by force and were eventually executed in 1792. And in the span from 1789 to 1792, the palace was, for the most part, sort of being evacuated. It was vacant, obviously, but not entirely. I mean, it's huge. It's massive. So then again, in 1792, around the time that they were executed, there was a massive assault on the Palace of Versailles, where anyone working there still was slaughtered. And for the rest of the French Revolution, the Palace of Versailles was largely abandoned and emptied of its contents, and the population of the surrounding city plummeted. A lot of the interior items from Versailles after the Revolution were taken to the Louvre or auctioned off. From 1804 to 1810, during the First Empire of France, Napoleon had the Grand Trianon and the Petit Trianon renovated for his mother and sister. Keep these places in mind, these two specifically, the Grand and Petit Trianon, because they're spooky. These are the spooky places, but we'll, we'll talk about that soon. Napoleon had hoped to bring Versailles back to its glory days and restore it as the Grand Palace it had once been prior to the Revolution. However, Napoleon was still not like his predecessors, so when it came to spending on renovations and such, he knew how the last monarchy ended and wasn't about to follow suit. Having enlisted various architects for the major job of reconstructing the palace and handling the new arrangements, Napoleon hesitated and kind of had the self-realization of, oh fuck, uh... <laughs> Pressed for a decision by his architects, he told them, just because Louis XV wasted millions of pounds doesn't mean it's okay to waste 40. So, yeah, he was trying not to get decapitated, but also, I guess, was just not, you know, he wanted his bang for his buck, which, I mean, we all, we all get that. He might have been a warmonger, but we can understand that, right? Towards the end of the Napoleonic Wars, Europe decided Napoleon was the reason why there was no peace. So... Napoleon would then be exiled in 1814, and Louis XVIII, brother to King Louis XVI, would be installed as King of France. But Napoleon would strike back again and escape from the island of Elba, which he had been exiled to, because, you know, ruling over a sweet island in the middle of the Mediterranean wasn't good enough, and so he attempted to reestablish the French Empire. However, it was a fruitless endeavor, and it wouldn't work and the Seventh Coalition would wage war on Napoleon and win. This event is referred to as the 100 Days War. Due to political tensions such as the Second White Terror, where pro-Bonapartists and revolutionaries were persecuted by royalists and the papal-aligned powers. Louis XVIII would eventually come to abandon Versailles again and leave it abandoned, 
as would his predecessor and brother, Charles X. King Louis-Philippe, crowned in 1830, finally revived Versailles and had the palace become the Museum of History of France in 1837, and had the former prince's apartments turned into the Galerie des Batailles. So after this, Versailles would no longer be a royal residence and would, to this day, continue to be a Museum of France. good so some of you at this point are probably like where what what about this is spooky i mean yeah there's technically some some horrific elements to this plot but what about it is spooky well it would make sense for you to ask that if you had never heard about the moberly jordan incident in 1911, Charlotte Ann Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain published a book entitled An Adventure Under the Names of Elizabeth Morrison and Francis Lamont. Their book describes a visit they made to the Petit Trianon on August 10th in 1901 on the grounds of the Palace Versailles, where they claimed to have seen the gardens as they had been in the late 18th century, as well as ghosts including Marie Antoinette and others. According to the two women, they had visited the palace, though wanted to explore the grounds more so than the grand building itself. They passed the Grand Trianon, which had been close to visitors that day, and headed to the Petit Trianon. However, they got lost and assumed they had passed it. For reference, if you're in the palace and are facing the Grand Canal, the Grand and Petit Trianon are to the right of the canal, and the Petit Trianon is further out to the right, but closer to Versailles and directly in front of Marie Antoinette's old estate. Moberly and Jourdain reported that as they walked, their moods began to plummet and a dreary and ominous feeling came over them both. After some time, they saw a few men who looked like the palace gardeners, and when they asked for directions, the men told them to go straight on. Moberly described the men as very dignified officials dressed in long grayish-green coats with small three-crowned hats, which was the official attire for royal groundskeepers in the late 18th century. Jourdain recalled that she noticed a cottage with a woman holding out a jug to a girl in the doorway, describing it as a tableau vivant, a sort of living picture much like Madame Tussaud's waxworks. Moberly did not observe the cottage, but remembered that she felt the atmosphere change. She wrote, Everything suddenly looked unnatural, therefore unpleasant. Even the trees seemed to become flat and lifeless, like wood worked in tapestry. There were no effects of light and shade, and no wind stirred the trees. I should note that while they walked, they either noticed a bridge or walked along a bridge or crossed it. I couldn't find if they had actually walked on it. I just, I, I guess I just didn't dive deep enough on that one. But there was a bridge, and this is important. They reported reaching the edge of the woods, close to the Temple de la Mort, and coming across a man seated beside a garden kiosk wearing a cloak and dark shady hat. According to Moberly, his appearance was most repulsive, his expression odious, his complexion was dark and rough. Jourdain noted, the man slowly turned his face, which was marked with smallpox, the expression was evil yet unseeing, and though I did not feel that he was looking particularly at us, I felt a repugnance going past him. So maybe he had a dark aura, or maybe these ladies are just a little too vain. I mean, 
I've walked by very decent looking people on the street and just felt, oh no, oh no. So maybe that's what they were feeling. Maybe, maybe the smallpox just didn't help. I mean, it's kind of rude, but I don't know. And while I was doing my research, I didn't see this, but supposedly there was a shed or some kind around this area. I heard that from another podcast, but I didn't find it in my research. So if you know where I could find that information, let me know. Eventually, another man whom the two described as tall with large dark eyes and crisp curling black hair under a wide-brimmed hat came up to them and showed them the way to the Petit Trinon. Moberly said she noticed a lady sketching on the grass as they walked who looked at them after they crossed a bridge to reach the gardens in front of the palace. Oh, wait, is this the bridge? (laughs) I think I got a little ahead of myself. I think this is the bridge. She later described the lady as wearing a light summer dress and a shady white hat with much fair hair. She also reported that she thought the woman was a tourist at first, but the dress appeared to be old-fashioned. After some time, she came to believe that the lady was, in fact, Marie Antoinette. However, Jourdain reported that she did not see this woman. According to both Jourdain and Moberly, neither woman mentioned the incident to one another until a week after leaving Versailles. What triggered the discussion was when Moberly, in a letter to her sister about the trip, began writing about the afternoon in the incident at Versailles. She reportedly asked Jourdain if she thought the Petit Trianon was haunted, and Jourdain told her that she thought it was. Three months later in Oxford, the two then decided to write separate accounts of the trip and then compare notes. The two visited the Trianon Gardens again on several more occasions, but were unable to trace the path they took, and various landmarks such as the kiosk and the bridge were missing, and the grounds were full of people unlike their first trip. After doing more research on Versailles, they discovered that it was August 10th in 1792 the palace had been under siege. This was also the same year that Marie Antoinette was executed, which of course means that they visited Versailles on the anniversary of the siege. They also came to believe that the man who led them back to the Petit Trianon was the friend of Marie Antoinette, the Comte Vaudreuil. Convinced that the grounds were haunted, they decided to publish their story in a book called An Adventure in 1911 under the pseudonyms of Elizabeth Morrison and Francis Lamont. Sadly, after publication of An Adventure, critiques began to flood in with both rational debunking and outrageous hate-mongering. Many critics, one of which being Philippe Julien in 1965, noted that at the time of the Moberly-Jourdain incident at Versailles, Robert de Montesquieu lived nearby and reportedly gave parties on the grounds where his friends dressed in period costumes and performed tableau vivants as part of the entertainment for his party. So it could easily be theorized that Moberly and Jourdain may have inadvertently crashed a gay fancy dress party that they confused for a haunting. Whether that meant gay is in happy or gay is in, you know, not heterosexual, I have no idea. I would speculate that both were going on. Another critic, Michael Coleman, carefully examined the story and questioned the validity of the background research of Versailles and pointed out that few, if any, informants or sources were listed. Terry Castle noted with skepticism that a shared delusion may have arisen out of a lesbian folie du, which, mmm, mmm, because, you know, being a lesbian makes you hallucinate and see the ghost of Marie Antoinette, don't you know that? Like, all the lesbians know that. That's the real takeaway here. 
I should also point out now that getting lost at Versailles is bound to happen to a majority of the people that visit. It's massive. And a lot of the land has very intricate trails, as well as many major walkways that are very, very long. Also, there are a lot of what looks like pathways that end up being dead ends because it was designed for palace security. So you'll be walking down this path, and in the middle, there are just man-made moats and ditches. Essentially, it's, it's a massive maze. And that maze mentality, there are certain gardens, I believe, are specifically mazes. Um... Don't quote me on that. But if you were to look at a map of Versailles and see all the different trails and the major walkways and all the different buildings you can go to, regardless if the architects or the kings in the past meant to do this or not, the place is a fucking giant maze. It's nuts. Okay, okay. Let's break this bitch down. It seems that seeing how they pass the Grand Trianon and Misty Petit Trianon via trails rather than the main walking paths, the two ladies must have traveled near the pass around the Belvedere and headed towards the Queen's Hamlet where the mill and farm were located. I personally believe they had to have walked from in front of the Grand Trianon and headed towards the pass around the French Pavilion. And it looks like they could have missed the Petit Trianon before making it to the Temple de l'Amour if they had gone the path that passes Catalpa Clearing. And an interesting little tidbit that I found, in 1903, allegedly, an old map of the Trianon Gardens was found and showed a bridge that the two women had claimed to have crossed, and it was not found on any other maps dating back to the Napoleonic era. Also, both women claimed... Many paranormal experiences happened before and after their adventure at Versailles, and one of them, Moberly claimed to have seen in the Louvre in 1914, an apparition of the Roman Emperor Constantine. Which, like, okay. Okay. I mean, if I saw Constantine walking around the Louvre when I was there, I'd probably just keep my head down and keep going, you don't want to fuck with a Roman Emperor, no thank you, keep that away from me. I don't need the clout that bad. No one will know of this. Interestingly enough, the official website for the Palace of Versailles has a page called the Ghosts of Trianon where it discusses the Moberly Jordan incident, which I'm like, wow, you actually put it on there as a historical thing. However, there are other accounts of odd activity around the palace as well. Louis XVI has been spotted by both tourists and staff within the main palace. And Marie Antoinette has also been spotted within the main palace, however, has had the most sightings around the Petit Trianon, her estate, as well as the gardens within that area. There have been plenty of reports of white mists and cold spots by Marie Antoinette's bed. Some reports also include sightings in the Queen's apartment and, don't quote me, but I believe the Queen's apartment is an apartment within the main palace of Versailles, not necessarily like her you know, estate. She had a separate estate on the premises, which, like, damn. Other reports of the Queen's apartment consist of objects moving by themselves, as well as glass objects breaking for no apparent reason. Great. 
It is also said that Marie Antoinette haunts the concierge, which is where she was held captive until her beheading in 1792. The Grand Trianon is actually a hotspot for activity and has had a few sightings of Napoleon. Charles de Gaulle, who used the northern wing of the building as his offices during his presidency, and even Ben Franklin, who visited King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette in 1778. However, I couldn't find much on these specific sightings, just what I've given you so far. I feel like people have this preconceived idea of Versailles, mainly because the gardens are so lavish and beautiful that most people try to take pictures of Versailles during the summer. And the sort of summer activities throughout history that happen at Versailles are very notorious. So I understand that sort of, you know, seeing it as this like beautiful wonderland garden of Eden. But if you go there in like the winter or the fall when it's muggy out and it's kind of close to sunset, it gets real creepy real fast. Like, the shit from nightmares, because like I said, it's very maze-like outside, and being outdoors, I watched a video, I, I, I have to put in context here, I watched a video where some girl was touring Versailles and touring the gardens during the off-season, and granted, I think she had done this for, you know, spooky effect to, you know, show everyone how creepy it can be, and man, it was just like, she didn't have to do much, like... <laughs> It was just that creepy. It's just, I don't know. The fog, I think, really, really kicked it up a notch. The fog was very eerie. And I could totally see how something that is usually seen as very beautiful and serene can be easily flipped with a switch. Like, it is quite literally night and day. Um, But the vibes are just, ooh, ooh. And, like, we all know what happened there. We all know... And you you can argue, like, well, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette weren't killed there. No, no. They were just taken in a very traumatic scene. However, there was the siege of August 10th where anyone on the grounds who served aristocracy was probably slaughtered like cattle. So, yeah, there was a lot of bloodshed at Versailles, not to mention just so much political ongoings during the French monarchy and long after it was disbanded and... In case you couldn't figure out, the monarchy was dismantled and the empire was instated and then the monarchy was reinstated and now it's a constitutional republic and semi-ministry because, you know, the highest power is the prime minister. Not that I know much about French politics right now, aside from the fact that uh, there was a, a sort of gathering. I don't know what the fuck was going on, but Macron got slapped across the face and it was the most French thing I had ever seen. <laughs> but other than that, um, just the yellow jacket protests I know about and a few other things. But Versailles was sort of at the center of all of these ups and downs throughout French history and saw the greatest moments of the greatest moments and saw the worst of the worst. And Frankly, I would not be surprised if it was extremely haunted because of what's gone on there. It's like a hill house on steroids. It's got not just family baggage and family lineage. It's got, you know, war. It's got war embedded in it. And it's been the centerpiece for so many different transitions of power 
Which sort of leads me to my last bit of information that I found where the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I, was signed at no other place but the Grand Trianon. So yeah, do I believe the moberly Jordan incident? I don't fucking know. I mean, <laughs> I've had my own weird experiences that I'm still mulling over, so I'm not about to question somebody else's. Although I think it's good to keep in mind that in the early 1900s, this was during the sort of height of the spiritual movement where there was a lot of people talking about ghosts and a lot of people doing divination work and there were a lot of psychics doing work and it was a time where business was booming for not just practitioners but also charlatans so it's hard to fucking say especially because they probably made a profit off that book However, I find it interesting that they chose to not elaborate further when, when broaching the topic to each other later and writing down their own accounts and then comparing them, which in their publication, there were certain things that Jordan saw and certain things that Moberly saw that the other didn't see. And I find that very interesting, especially if you're, you know, wanting to lie about something, you'd probably agree on seeing something for validity, you know, like you see something, oh, and, and my co-author also saw it, therefore two people saw it. That's where most people go to when they try to fake something, I would think. And the fact that there's one person who co-wrote it being like, I didn't see that, I don't know. I have no idea if it's real or not. And I'm like, oh, like I sense honesty there. And that's, hmm. Then again, lies are complicated and you can always riddle a lie with truth, but it's just very interesting, especially considering the old map that was found that showed a bridge that was not there in the early 1900s. It was dismantled and only found on an older map that was probably somewhere deep in the archives that someone just stumbled upon and was like, oh, there's a fucking bridge that used to be here, wouldn't you know? And then, you know... By the time they found that map, Moberly and Jordan already had their incident two years prior and were already working on writing the book. However, you can say, like, maybe the map was really the inspiration. Who knows? Who fucking knows? I don't. And there you have it. That is my take on the Palace of Versailles, as well as the incidents and hauntings surrounding the palace. Now, sources. An Adventure by Charlotte Ann Moberly and Eleanor Jourdain. Marie Antoinette, A Journey by Antonia Frazier. The Chateau de Versailles official website. The Ghosts of Versailles article by the AESU Travel Company. Which, okay, I guess. Versailles, A History by Robert B. Abrams. And, you know, a little bit of wiki. By the way, donate to wiki. Guys, we need wiki. It's not always the best, but we need wiki. Donate. And again, if you had sources that you want me to use, or if you have a topic you want me to cover, you can email that stuff to smokeandshadowpodcast at gmail.com. Links to my Patreon are in the show notes, so if you choose to donate, thank you very much. And you can follow me on Instagram at Podcast, where you can see highlights of research and sneak peeks of what's coming out, and you can do little quizzes in this story. It's so fun. Come on over. And it really helps when you 
share the podcast with anyone you know, as well as to subscribe and download as much as often because it helps get more attention to the podcast. So if you do any of that, thank you so much. And with that, I'm out. I'll see you guys on the next one.